Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. Now Jesus was teaching in in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, we once again witness a controversy over Jesus' observance of the Sabbath day. If you recall earlier in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6, we encounter another one of these controversies where Jesus' disciples were plucking heads of grain as they were traveling on the Sabbath day and earned the scorn of the religious leaders. Immediately following that, we also saw in chapter 6 Jesus healing on the Sabbath day, which provoked another reaction. We see a similar controversy here in chapter 13, and, and a few passages from now in chapter 14, We'll witness another controversy as Jesus heals again on the Sabbath day. One thing that we see in this passage and the passage that immediately follows is this link, this connection between Sabbath observance and the kingdom of God. If you look down to verse 18, we read, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Therefore, He's linking this idea of the kingdom of God to one Sabbath observance. Now, what's the connection between the kingdom of God, our citizenship in that kingdom, and the Sabbath, kingdom and Sabbath? Well, we can make a parallel to our national identity. For those who are citizens of a nation, one ordinarily has national holidays. Holidays where you take a break from your ordinary vocation, your ordinary routine, You gather, celebrate, remember, reflect on a particular person or event that's significant in your nation's past. 
Well, as members, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have our own holiday, Holy Day, which comes each week, the Lord's Day. A day in which we stop our ordinary vocation and routine, gather, celebrate, remember, reflect upon a particular person and a particular event, namely our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so, basic to life in the kingdom is the Sabbath, our holiday, as it were. Well, the fourth commandment, which speaks to the Sabbath day, says that the Sabbath is holy. And the word holy literally means set apart. It's distinct. And so how is the Sabbath to be set apart? How is it to be distinct from the other six days of your week? How do you set apart the Sabbath day? Well, Jesus in this passage is addressing this question. How is the Sabbath properly to be set apart, sanctified? What we'll see is, uh, in this passage, we'll see how the Sabbath was to be set apart in the Old Covenant. Now, remember as Jesus is speaking and performing this healing uh, in this passage, this is still the Old Covenant. The New Covenant doesn't properly begin until after the death and resurrection of Christ. And thus we'll see how the Sabbath was to be set apart in the Old Covenant, and then we'll reflect upon how this passage teaches us how the Sabbath is to be set apart in the New Covenant. So first, how is the Sabbath to be set apart in the Old Covenant? covenant. Well, in verse 10, the beginning of this passage, we read, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. We've already witnessed on a number of occasions Jesus doing this, teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath day. Now, what this teaches us is it reflects this principle that one of the purposes of the Sabbath is worship. Even before synagogue worship uh, began, we see this in the Old, Old Testament when the, the Sabbath day was a day of holy convocation, a holy gathering. It was a day of worship. We see this pattern continuing in the New Covenant. Acts, every first day of the week, Christians gather. They do the same things. They break bread. They hear the word. They gather together. And so we see that the Sabbath in the Old Covenant was a day set apart for the people as holy to worship, to worship their God. Now, synagogue worship at this time in Jesus' day was very similar to historic Christian worship, very similar to the order of service that we engage in here. They would ordinarily recite a creed, and for them it was the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. They would recite that each and every Sabbath. They would then chant or sing psalms and some hymns. They would read the law of God. So they would have a reading from the law and a reading from the prophets. And then someone would give an exposition, a sermon, from one or more of those passages. Prayers would be offered, and then they would conclude with a benediction. A benediction from Numbers chapter 6, which we ordinarily 
conclude our services with. The ironic blessing. And here Jesus is probably at that point in the synagogue service where the, law, where the, the word of God is read and the sermon is being conducted. And here Jesus is the one giving the sermon. He's teaching. You can probably imagine this scene. People are gathered to hear this, this teaching from this renowned rabbi, teacher, who has quite a reputation, who speaks with authority. And Jesus' eye catches a woman. Now, she may have been walking in, or she may have been seated. And this woman has a, 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 is hunched over. She has some spinal uh, disorder, disease. We, we read that it's due to a demonic spirit. And as soon as Jesus' eye catches this woman, he stops, as if mid-sentence, and says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he calls her up, he, he, gets, uh, he moves around from his lectern, and he puts his hands upon this woman and we read immediately, she was made straight. And she glorified God. Now the ruler of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue was the person in the community who had the job of organizing synagogue worship. And the services usually had um, um, a, a pretty good reputation within the community. Now you can imagine that this ruler of the synagogue wasn't too pleased with what Jesus had done, first of all, since it went out of routine and order. Religious leaders oftentimes don't like when routine, tradition, order is disrupted. And sometimes that good, that's good, sometimes that's bad. But you can imagine this teacher disrupting his sermon, speaking directly to an individual, going off into the audience, laying his hands upon her in the middle of the sermon, probably would have been somewhat controversial. But what we read in this passage is that this ruler of the synagogue was especially angered, not because the routine was disrupted, though that probably annoyed him. He was especially angry because he believed that Jesus was profaning the Sabbath day, blatantly disobeying the law of God in front of all these people by healing this woman. Reread this ruler of synagogue saying, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. But not on the Sabbath day. You may ask, well, why in the world did this ruler react this way? Well, this ruler of synagogue properly understood that one of the great purposes of the Sabbath is physical rest. Especially in the Old Testament, this rest was ironically quite rigorous. It was strict. It was a complete rest. It was so much so that one couldn't start a fire. One couldn't pick up sticks. It was a, a day of complete rest. And what happened is that over time, there became a, this interpretation of God's law in Judaism that said, when it comes to healings, the only healings that are permissible on the Sabbath day are those healings that are life-threatening. Meaning if someone's life was threatened, one could perform medical uh, procedures and give care. So that was one exception. Another exception was if a baby was, giving uh, was being born, if a woman goes into labor, then you can give medical help. Or if a circumcision needed to be done, you could perform that. But beyond that, if it wasn't immediate, if it wasn't life-threatening, 
It can wait, it can wait till Monday morning. Because we don't want to break our physical rest. That was the idea that developed within Judaism. And so this ruler of the synagogue sees this woman who has some spinal condition and, and sees that her life is clearly not on the lines. Like this is not life-threatening. And he thinks, this, this can wait till Monday morning. Jesus, you do not need to profane the Sabbath day by healing this woman in front of all these people. He's angered. And Jesus responds, just as forthright, by saying, you hypocrites! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus is indicting the ruler of this synagogue and, by extension, the other religious leaders of his day, with hypocrisy. Why? Because they themselves have a category for showing compassion on the Sabbath day, but they're just not consistent. That compassion principle is underdeveloped. And here he employs a, a, a well-used rhetorical technique that he uses quite often in the Gospels, the lesser to the greater argument. And he says, okay, if you guys accept that it's okay for, for the, the Jewish people to untie their ox or their donkey, to lead them to water on the Sabbath, that is to say, if you're okay with showing compassion to your livestock, why are you not okay with showing compassion to an image bearer of God, not just an image bearer, but a daughter of Abraham, meaning a member of the covenant community of God, lesser to the greater. But we also see that this word for untie, when, when Luke employs this word, untie his ox or his donkey, that word untie is the same word for bound, how this woman has been bound by Satan for 18 years. And there's a connection even to the manner of their binding. And so, you can uh, push this, this argument even further by saying, you know, if an ox or a donkey is bound for, what, a matter of hours on the Sabbath day and released, how much more should we be seeking to or, or unbind someone who's been bound for 18 years, lesser to the greater? Furthermore, if this ox or the donkey is, is, you know, is tied up by a rope, and you seek to release it so that it can get water, how much more so should you seek to loose a woman who's been bound by Satan? Not a mere rope, a lesser to the greater. And thus the argument is, if you show compassion to an ox who's been bound for a matter of hours by a rope, how much more so should you be seeking to show compassion to a daughter of Abraham who's been bound by Satan for 18 years? saying you're hypocrites. You don't practice this compassion principle consistently. And so what Jesus is showing his audience, his original audience, is that the Sabbath is, yes, it's a day of worship. He's not seeking to overturn that principle. Yes, it's a day of physical rest. He's not overturning that principle, but what he's wanting to do is show them that compassion isn't exceptional, meaning it's not an exception in rare circumstances. Rather, it's one of the great purposes of the Sabbath. 
worship, rest, compassion. That's how the Sabbath was to be sanctified, even in Jesus' own day in the Old Covenant. Well, that leads us then to the question of how is the Lord's Day to be set apart, sanctified, for us as New Covenant Christians who live between the two advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these three basic categories that we've seen continue. They persist into the New Covenant era. However, now they are explicitly anchored in Christ and his redemptive healing. So this, this, this passage, I believe, in, in many ways is foreshadowing New Covenant Sabbath observance. As Jesus himself uh, heals, heals this woman. So we see that these categories of worship, of rest, of compassion are now explicitly anchored in Christ and his redemptive healing. Now the healings of Christ, which we witness in this passage, we witness in many other passages, are healings that we are, are well known to many Christians. But it's easy for us to lose the significance, the deeper significance of what these healings really mean. Now these healings are illustrative of Jesus' great mission for coming to this earth. The main mission for Jesus taking on human form was to inaugurate, bring about the kingdom of God or the new creation. Those ideas are, are, are synonyms of, in a way. The healings are illustrative of, of the new creation, the kingdom. And we know that in this age, between the two advents of Christ, the new creation dawns inwardly. That is to say, the new creation takes the form of the application of salvation in our regeneration, justification, sanctification. The new creation doesn't affect our outward bodies in this age. Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the outer man is, is wasting away. It's the inner man that's being renewed day by day. So in this age, in this application of the new creation, the kingdom of God, we witness that new creation inwardly as our inner man is being renewed day by day. But when the new creation is consummated at Christ's second coming, then this new creation will take an outward form as the new heavens and the new earth are brought forth and as our bodies are resurrected. So you can think of the new creation having two installments. In this age, we taste of new creation inwardly. In the age to come, it will take an outward form. And these healings then are illustrative of the new creation. It's illustrative of what Jesus will do to us inwardly in this age. He renews our inner man. But these healings are also illustrative of what Jesus will do in his second advent in a more permanent and final manner as he gives us the permanent resurrection of the body. So how is Sabbath worship, Sabbath worship, how is it anchored in this redemptive healing of Christ? Well, in this age, we know that worship is the means by which Jesus, through his spirit, renews us. Worship is the means by which Jesus, through his spirit, renews us. Where we taste of that redemptive healing, as it were. Christ hasn't promised that his church or 
ministers or pastors will have the gift of miraculously healing people's bodies as he and the apostles did at certain occasions, but we taste of this redemptive healing through word and sacrament as we are renewed day by day as the Apostle Paul says. We read in Romans 10 that faith comes about through hearing the word of God, meaning the word, the preaching of the word, the means by which faith is created, sustained, and developed. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is the means by which we grow more and more in our communion and union with Christ. Baptism is a means of assurance, assuring us that Christ has taken the wrath of God, the final judgment for us in the floodwaters of the cross. And so we see word and sacrament are a means of strengthening, nurturing our faith in this age, in this life. And this is important because in many ways we need more Sunday Christians. In one sense, this uh, people can hear this and think that this, this would lead to nominalism. Just, you're just Christians on Sundays as opposed to the rest of the week. And granted, there is a, um, we have to guard against nominalism, but if you were to ask the New Testament, how can one become a mature Christian over the long haul? The resounding answer the New Testament would give you would be faithful attendance to the means of grace every Lord's Day. That's what we see throughout the book of Acts, the pastoral epistles. Sundays are what makes faithful, mature Christians. Uh, historian Carl Truman, he, he teaches right now at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. He is a Reformation historian and now has done some work with the rise of modernity. And I was reading an article this past week that he wrote quite a while ago on this point, on the, the importance of the public means of grace. And he said, while the private word, as we read by ourselves and with our family, that's important. The public preaching of the word has central place. And he, one note that he makes is that when we put ourselves under the spoken or preached word, we can have relative uh, amount of uh, a decent amount of certainty that that word won't be filtered by our own preferences and prejudices. That's important, because that's a temptation, especially when we read the Bibles by ourselves. We just filter the word. We read what we want to hear, and we stay away from those things that we don't want to hear. But he also says that the spoken word, the preached word, does a better job of tearing down our pride and then building us up, back up in grace than we can do by ourselves in our prayer closet, as it were. Another way to put it, the spoken, the preached word, in the spoken or preached word, the law thunders louder and the gospel comes sweeter than when you just read that word privately to yourself. In many ways, this is why Luther in the Reformation didn't want to get rid of confession wholesale. He wanted to revise it. He, he didn't think that the, the priest or the pastor should have the power, or that he didn't think that they have the power in themselves to absolve one of sin. He also didn't think this should be a sacrament. But he wanted to retain the practice of Christians confessing their sins to one another and hearing the gospel spoken over them because he knew the power of the spoken word 
over us as Christians. Well, how is uh, how are works of mercy, uh, works of mercy, anchored in uh, the redemptive healing of Christ? Again, Jesus shows us here that the, the Jews themselves should have had a category. And they, in fact, implicitly did have a category for showing compassion on the Sabbath day. They just needed to develop it. But now as New Covenant Christians, we see that our compassion is now explicitly rooted in the compassion of Christ. This is true of many of our acts of obedience as New Covenant Christians. For instance, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we are called to show generosity overwhelming generosity. Paul doesn't give us a certain uh, percentage that we need to give as he did the Old Covenant saints, but rather he says you should be overwhelmingly generous and the reason, the ground for that generosity is the generosity of Christ. Because Christ, who was rich, became poor so that you, being poor, might become rich. That generosity that we've received in the gospel should be the motivation for us to be generous to one another. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And so we are to show compassion, be merciful to others as Christ himself was merciful and compassionate. I mentioned last week as we welcomed Brit and Sarah into membership that the New Testament is replete with these one another's that we are called to obey. Pray for one another, encourage one another, um, Admonish one another. Speak the word to one another. This presumes the fact that we are actually in fellowship with other Christians, that we see other Christians on a at least weekly basis, because without that, you can't really fulfill these one another's, doing good to other people who are in the Lord, Christians. Oftentimes when we think of this, this idea of works of mercy or compassion, we can think of extravagant works. Someone's in crisis and, and you're actually going and doing something, bringing them a meal or doing other physical act of service towards them. Now that's great, that's good, that's, that's part of what this calls us to do. However, showing compassion, especially on the Lord's Day, is as simple as having a conversation with someone. As simple as asking someone how their week was. As simple as praying for someone, encouraging that person with the word of God. That's what we need. We're social creatures. We're creatures made for community. And so one of the purposes of the Lord's Day is, is to have fellowship, intentional fellowship, where we talk to one another, listen to one another, bear our burdens to one another. And that's what it's going to look like most often for us, is to having, is having a warm, inviting community of, of Christians who realize that we're pilgrims in this age and we need one another. We need the fellowship of the saints. That's one of the greatest ways we can show compassion on the Lord's Day. Well, how is physical rest, physical rest anchored in this redemptive healing of Christ? Well, in one sense, rest is obvious because if we don't rest from our ordinary vocation and routine, we won't even have time to worship or fellowship with others. So we need to rest in order to do something else. But I also think that physical rest is an end in itself, meaning rest isn't there just so that we can do something else. 
we are natural, we have, we're, we're creatures with, with natural bodies that need rest. And therefore, physical rest is a proper end and purpose of this day. And as we do those things which give us bodily rest, we anticipate, in some sense, what's ahead. At Jesus' second advent, when the new creation will be consummated and we will enter into an embodied rest. Not just our souls, but especially our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And so worship, compassion, rest, for us as new covenant Christians are explicitly rooted, grounded, anchored in redemptive healing of Christ. I also want to note how this passage ends. Notice how after all this takes place, the people who were there witnessing this, this miracle rejoiced in this redemptive healing of Christ. This tells us that the posture, our posture, for how we observe the Sabbath day should be one of joy, even festivity. Now think about our ordinary holidays. Most people don't dread our normal national holidays. Now, of course, some people do, and uh, for those who, who maybe don't have family around or have recently lost a loved one, and, and it can be a, a difficult time, but ordinarily, most people look forward to a day off of work. They look forward to the break of their normal routine. They look forward to gathering with family and friends, enjoying a special meal. Thus, it's the same way with the Lord's Day. We shouldn't dread this day. We should anticipate this day with great excitement. This is the day in which we gather, not just with natural family at times, but most importantly, the family of God, an everlasting family. A day in which we don't just enjoy a common special meal, but a holy special meal in the Lord's Supper. A day in which we hear our God speak to us, his citizens, in both his law and his gospel. This is truly a festive day. So one thing that can be helpful for us as individuals, as couples, as families, is to think of things that you can do to make this day especially festive. A day that communicates the significance of what this is that we're celebrating. It truly is a holiday for us to enjoy. Remember our Heidelberg Catechism. And it says, this is the festive day of rest. It's the festive day of rest. And so, beloved in the Lord, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is indeed a day where we worship. A day in which we rest. A day in which we seek to show compassion as a means of experiencing and showing forth the redemptive healing of our Lord 